You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. This episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is sponsored by Harry Tarantula, where you can get 50% off graphic novels and trade paperbacks for the entire month of November. With the holiday season just around the corner, it's the perfect time to stock up on titles for those special people in your life. You could go with the classics, like Dark Knight Returns, or what about Watchmen, now that it's an HBO series? I like new releases like Naomi, by Brian Michael Bendis, and superstar artist and former Speech Bubble guest, Jamal Campbell. Whatever your flavor, Leon will give you a great deal. So head on down to Harry Tarantula at 3456 Young Street, get your 50% off trade paperbacks and graphic novels all month long, and tell them Aaron sent you. Hey, fan people. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I'm always talking about the connection between comics and coffee. It's because I love coffee. I do my French press every morning. I do the pour over. That's why we've teamed with the superheroes at BAM Coffee, bamcoffee.ca. Their roaster, Aaron, is Canadian. He's from Saskatchewan, and he's a geek like us. That's why he's putting his clean, ethically sourced coffee in something called a BAM box. He's combining coffee with the geek swag that I know our listeners are going to love. That's 700 grams or 350 grams of coffee with art prints by local Canadian comic artists, a limited edition mug. I mean, what more could you ask for? If you want to try it, he's giving a special promo code to Speech Bubble listeners, SB15. So go to bamcoffee.ca, type in SB15 at checkout, and get 15% off your first BAM box. Hey, maybe you want to just try the coffee. That's okay too. He'll send you 150 grams of coffee, and all you gotta pay for is the shipping. I mean, that's a pretty amazing deal. So go to bamcoffee.ca and tell Aaron that Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble. The podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com. Don't forget to follow us on all social media at Speech Bubble Pod, leave us a review on Apple Podcast, on Stitcher, on Google Play, and I will send you a comic from my personal collection. Uh, with me today, uh, she is a Toronto artist. You know her work, Queen Street, published by Chapter House. It's a, a fictionalized story about a mother and her daughter living in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, she's also working on an erotic comic for Patreon only called Princess Bunyi. Please welcome Emmanuel Chetunov. Hi, Emmanuel. How are you? Hey, I'm doing really good. So I know that Queen Street is sort of semi-autobiographical, but yeah. fictionalized, Well, right? yeah, it's the only way that it's fictional is the fact that 
it's all real and it all happened to me. It was just smooshed into 12 hours instead of like happening throughout, you know, several years of my childhood. Okay, so what this alludes to is that your your mother was in the Philippines and then eventually moved to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Is that mm-hmm. sort of where your life started? Yeah, so my mom is an immigrant. Uh, She was born in the Philippines and for a period of her life lived in, well, in the book it says she was living in Manila, but at the time she was living in Hong Kong. Okay. And she was living in Hong Kong and that's how she met uh, my father through this like 80s letter writing dating service. So it was like the Tinder of that time, but just with letters across the world. And um, yeah, they really hit it off. And then they ended up like falling madly in love and they wrote like hundreds of letters to each other. And uh, she decided to move to Canada, you know, for my dad and to like just kind of start a whole new life. So was he already in Canada writing her from He here? was, um, I think at the time he was uh, working on an icebreaker. So he was just kind of like traveling the world <laughs> <laughs> on the back of a ship, just kind of like writing this Asian woman in the Philippines. And, um, but yeah, no, uh, he was doing that. And then I think that's when, you know, well, decided to get married and tie the knot. And that took a long time because my mom had to like, you know, go through immigration and get her visa. And so, uh, it was like a long thought out, like well thought out process that they went through. And he's French, your father? Yeah. French Canadian. Nice. Nice. I can tell by the name, right? I was born in Blind River. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. So, so I guess... Uh, what I want to get into is like, what was your growing up life like? Uh, you know, how were your parents? What was it like to, uh, you know, be a part of that? Yeah, well, you know, from the perspective as a child, you know, being a child, you just like, every day is such an adventure. And at night, you don't want to fall asleep because being awake is the coolest thing in life. You know, every moment is just this new, wonderful, insane experience. And, you know, as a kid, I grew up not really understanding a lot of things. I was just like, no, this is awesome. This is great. This is my mom. My dad's gone all the time because of work and like whatever, I guess. Yeah. He was on a ship or. No, at that time he was a long haul truck driving. Okay. Yeah. Just like in the book. Yeah. Just like in the book. And well, like like I said, everything in the book is basically real. Some of the names I changed, um, although for some of the people who just passed on, I left their names the way they are. Right. Kind of deal. I didn't bother changing them. Um, But yeah, um, we just, we, we were living together in this like small little apartment that was kind of falling apart in downtown Sault Ste. Marie on Queen Street, which is nothing like the downtown we have here. It is a ghost town. (laughs) There is nothing there. Like, it's the kind of small town where nobody takes public transit. Everybody drives. And people who take public transit are considered dirty. It's a very class. It's a classist, you know, kind of thing. Like, I remember my friends in high school being like, oh, yeah, my parents won't let me take the bus because it's dangerous. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, "Mm, girl, you're dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) You're one of those people who takes the bus. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so it was really, I don't know, from the perspective of the book, because it it showcases my life when I'm only seven, you know, and it's that beautiful time, like I said, of just when you're a kid and when you don't understand um, the harsh realities of life. I didn't understand that I was of mixed race. You know, I didn't understand that we were technically lower class. I didn't understand that we were technically white trash kind of thing, you know. And these are all things, too, where, again, I remember when I first made the book, I was telling 
um, just um, it was someone at my university about it because I was still like in university as I was making the book. And I think he was a professor or someone. No one like in my department. Um, it was just a random guy at the school who I struck up conversation with. And, he, and I was telling him particularly about there's a character in the book named Pat. And she was my neighbor. And this is not a stereo. I'm not stereotyping. And like I'm just saying it as it is. She was Native American and she was an alcoholic. And but she was just a wonderful woman. She was so wise and kind and funny and warm and just happy, you know, all the time. And my mom would just, you know, give me to her all the time to, you know, to look after. And she she and her boyfriend, she was an elderly woman with a cute ass boyfriend, her and Henry, this old couple. And they would just sit in the living room and drink while I'd like play with the cat. And it was just good, you know, and that was it. And I remember telling him about this. And he's like, oh, my God, when did CAS come in? And I was like, pardon you? And he's like, Child Protective Services. Your mother left you in the care of an alcoholic. Shame on her. And then I remember thinking about that because I was only like 19 at the time. And I'm like, is that how people see me? And I think Pat. And I'm like, no, but she was a good woman. And I mean, she had her problems and she had her issues. But, you know, she also drank a lot. But that didn't affect our relationship. It didn't. You know, I'm older now and I do understand, you know, what it means to, you know, be an addict and all of that stuff. But it just, it's, it was shocking to me because you grow up and you live your life and you just, you see what's in front of you and to you everything is a gift. But then as you grow up, you start to realize, you know, how other people view you and the perspectives of others. Right. There's a little bit of that in here mm -hmm. uh, in the dance class with the yeah. other kids who don't want to play with you and you don't really understand mm -hmm. why yeah, i was really bullied when i was a kid but only in my dance class which is funny because like i went to uh there were two <laughs> there were two french immersion elementary schools uh rosedale and saint mary's and rosedale was like the fancy school where all the rich kids went and then uh, then there was our school <laughs> so <laughs> again considered we're all like the quote-unquote dirty kids went which is like I'm like, yeah, some of my friends had parents who were doctors. We just lived in the East End. But anyways, so, uh, wait, I'm sorry. What did you say? Just the... just about how, like, the kids in the dance class that were bullying you, there seemed to be a lot of, like, class tension, like you, yeah, like you yeah. mentioned. They were, um, well, you know, understandably uh, sports. Preferably, like you know, the kind of the kind of school I went to wasn't just like a casual dance class. It was a it was a proper academy, uh, led by um, a very uh, well-to-do dancer and like teacher who really made a name for herself. It was a very good school, Sherry Walsh Academy of Dance Arts. Um, a very very good school, and um, so a lot of the kids who went there were you know pretty rich, and um, like to help put me through dance school. I remember my mom. And dad used to do all these like extra little things that other parents who were also struggling to pay for their kids dance tuition uh, would do like bingo nights and stuff like that um, where they would just like run the bingo night and it would help them make some like money. But yeah, no, I just remember. Yeah, I was just I was just bullied because I was just different. Yeah, people and didn't they, understand. Yeah, and they don't understand, and they push away what is different. And, like, there's a scene in the book where, where the little girls are just, like, when I go up, I'm like, what are you doing? And they're, like, they're about to say, oh, we're, like, having a pool party. But she's like, no, we're at the dumpster. And I remember that, like, such a vivid memory of, like, me chasing the girls around in the halls. And then, like, one of them would be like, oh, we're going to the dumpster so I can hear. Even though I know I'm like, no, I know you're going. they're going to your mansion to swim in your pool. It's okay. 
right kind of thing um but like just like little things like that again to kind of like show the class divide right and i wasn't the only person like it was easier to kind of again to condense it into because just for a small little hundred page novella um instead of just like but there was there were several other uh students in varying uh classes and like years Mm -hmm. who were also you know native american or also came from very poor families and um yeah just were either (laughs) that was it it was like either you were of color or poor although it was more like the poor part that was like the issue and um or of course if you were overweight but that's another issue that's another (laughs) that's another whole thing that's part of the dance world Uh, yeah and then these people were kind of like segregated and just ignored and Mm -hmm. not good stuff and then (laughs) not seeing your father like when you did see him like what was the what was the dynamic between you guys well you know when you uh when you're a kid you don't tend to really notice this stuff that much i guess and when I would see him during the year, it was always just like really nice, you know, it was like the highlights. Right. Because he'd only be around for like a month at a time. Right. Like four or five times a year. And so it was always just like really fun and nice. And then he'd like do the dad thing and like punish me when he had to and play bad cop and, you know, mm-hmm. do all of that stuff. But uh, yeah, that definitely changed when he ended up like moving back home. But. Oh, okay. Well, maybe we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Um, your your mom. What did she What did she do? Um, you mean like when she just yeah, oh yeah my, for work? No, my parents are oh for work. Well, she was a waitress. Okay. Yeah, just she was like a waitress from yeah, from just like in the book. Every like I said, everything in the book is like yeah. my grandmother's name is Martha. Nice. <laughs> she acted just like that. She was the crustiest lady, but the most wonderful. Nice. Um, yeah, no, my mom was a waitress from for like longer than I can remember. Uh, when she came back to Canada, she didn't want to go back to school. She was like, I'm not going to spend all this time going back to school. Screw that. I'm just going to be a waitress. That's fine. Yeah. And as a kid, were you, like, Melody in here is very much, like, in her imagination. Mm-hmm. She's, like, creating her own worlds and, like, you know, her own little, like, battles in her head from stuff that she says on TV and her toys mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Were you that type of person? Like, yeah, super imaginative? Yeah, I am still that person. Yeah. Um, I don't know. When you're... I guess like now with like what I've learned from therapy (laughs) and stuff like that. But like when you're alone all the time, it it is, it becomes kind of like a coping mechanism um, for a child who already has like a very overactive imagination and who's talented at it and who's very good at it, you know, and most kids are, you know. So yeah, I just remember as a kid, I was always playing. Everything was a game to me. Everything was an adventure and not just an like in the physical way, it was always a little bit more extravagant. I was always a princess or a knight or um, some sort of superhero um, in my own mind. Nice. You know? And she's very precocious. Like, she picks up on things. So you must have been just as smart for, like, a seven-year-old. Yeah. Uh, I guess when I was – I forget what age I was, but my parents, they were thinking of – my teachers wanted to send me to, like, a school for gifted children. And uh, because, like, I was just – I was really bored in all of my classes. And I was just, like, failing a lot of courses because I just wasn't being stimulated enough. Um, but – 
they wanted to send me to like a special school. My parents were like, well, do you want to go? Because like this isn't something that's uncommon in the Philippines, right? Like if you want your child to go to a good school, you send them to one of the good schools. Right. To a private school. Because like unlike, you know, North America, private schooling is a huge thing all around the world, particularly in like Asian countries. And um, it just kind of understood there that if you want to get like a very good schooling, you send your child to a private school. So my mom was just like, oh. Yeah, of course. Yeah, let's put her in a private school. And um, so they asked me, they're like, well, do you want to do it? And then I kind of like wimped out (laughs) because I was so young, right? Right. And I just I didn't want to like lose all the friends that I did have because I did have friends at my elementary school. I mean, dance, which was half of my life, was a desolate wasteland (laughs) of no friendship and just being bullied and ignored. But um being like in my elementary school though like i had some buds nice um so yeah uh you've always sort of been like the imaginative kid yeah i just have always i i I do like i've always just had like a really really overactive brain Mm. and like i love well i mean we all do it's all kind of i guess we're all here a little bit we all love to make up stories and we love to um just kind of help ourselves through that although i do think I do think that is very much a product of being, you know, raised very Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get into that. Yeah, we'll get into that. So, so in terms of like, uh, dance, did you want to be a dancer? Is that why you got into it? Or did your parents like put you in, in it or something you wanted to do? Well, what happened was like, it's a funny story. Um, I was at just like the Sears (laughs) with my mom and we, we saw one of her, um, another Filipino family here in our here in the Sioux. And uh, their daughter, Melissa, who ended up being one of my teachers later, she was Filipino. And I remember seeing her in this like beautiful blue ballet uh, costume. And um, I think I was like only like three or four at the time. I must have been three. And because I started around that age, uh, it must have been like three. And then I like asked her to dance for me a little bit. And she did some pirouettes just like in the Sears waiting for like, to get her photo at like the little photo place and um from that day i was like mom i want to be in ballet <laughs> i want to be in dance i want to be just like her nice. um but yeah and it was kind of as much as it was a place where i went and i was very forgotten it was very much my salvation because it was my first door into self-expression and creation and where i could finally allow my brain and all that was happening in my imagination to meet with the physical world and where i could finally channel all of that inspiration and create something real out of you know all of my fantasies nice what were some of like the greatest hits of your fantasy life like what did you used to imagine what do you everything i put in there i mean what every kid imagines you are in the bathtub you are a mermaid period right like (laughs) there is no i remember when i first put the book out and had so many people relate to me like girls and boys being like yeah every bath time i was a mermaid a plus i'm like yeah of course like this is like one of the coolest you know when you're a kid um and then tarzan as much as like that is a very which is funny because i even i even bring it back in princess bunyi um both of those things being a mermaid being like living in the jungle tarzan and who that's a very problematic piece of literature now but still you know the idea of you know living with the animals right in the forest um you know and having 
at least now I feel it's more romanticized. Like as a kid, I'm like, oh, that's so cool. But now as an adult with all the stresses of work and life, I'm like, that just sounds even better. Having to worry about nothing, about feeding yourself, protecting yourself, sheltering yourself, <laughs> not worrying about <laughs> climate change and all these other things and, you know, paying your rent. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. All the like responsibilities. Yeah. And then again, that's also like a very first world canadian perspective but anyways yeah just like that's always been a big one just like camping that whole thing yeah. living in the wild living with the animals yeah um did you did you always draw as a kid uh, <laughs> um not really to be totally honest like i used to draw but it was never like i would just do it for fun i would draw just as much as i sang just as much as i danced just as much as I would try my hardest at, at like anything. Right. Um, but no, drawing was never, drawing and writing were never that big a thing for me. I think until um, like 2006, 2007-ish okay. when, uh, you know, the internet became like a, a bigger thing for our generation. Right. And uh, I started writing fan fiction. <laughs> cool. So you mentioned that a lot of like your imaginative stuff and the stuff you were into was sort of as an escape mm -hmm. from like your home life a little, like especially like later. You mentioned like uh, your dad moving back home. Yeah. What what happened with that? Like, because this covers like a pretty idyllic time in your life, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I guess. So what happened afterwards? <laughs> well everyone wants to know they're always like well like what what do you mean to be continued i'm like well i'm alive <laughs> i'm only 25 years old um i'm still you know doing my thing um but yeah no it's just you know life life happens right like you have that idyllic time in your life where you're a child and everything is new and perfect and wonderful and there's this innocence of you know this, this this naivete that when everything comes to you it is simply as it is there's there's no like people are just good people are just bad there's nothing else gray there's nothing yeah there's, there's there's no gray there's no need to have compassion or to understand and it just it is what it is you right. know and everything is just honest and out in the open at right. least like from the perspective of children um and then you know you get older and then you begin to develop empathy <laughs> and you start to learn that things aren't necessarily as you saw you know, like you, you could see that the, the struggle that the young mother who's just in her 20s, which is like what most people now go go through in their 20s and 30s here, right. you know, as adults kind of being like, I had so many dreams and I had so many expectations and, you know, I thought I understood everything, but I don't. And I'm lost and confused and worried all the time. And I have all of this, you know, I have this whole life ahead of me that I have to live now. And now I understand how hard it's going to be. And it's a daunting, you know, it's a daunting road. So, you know, my father eventually in like 2006-ish around there, he came, he came home right before the economy crashed. Okay. He came home right before the, the economic crash. And Where had he been? He was still um, just truck driving. Okay. Yeah, he, he drove trucks until I was like in grade six. Okay. And, uh... Yeah, that was a bit of a, that was a tough, tough time uh, because then he couldn't get any more jobs because of, you know, the recession and my mom's only a waitress and then I was still going through dance and then dance became like this big, um, like sore in our life 
and because it was costing money because it was costing a lot of money but then also too you know we like the book touches a little bit on addiction like you see like the the mother like the mother amy she smokes the grandma smokes it alludes a little bit to the fact that she was an alcoholic in the past that's why her and pat really don't like each other and because like pat is like an open addict who's like no i love myself just the way that i am yeah i can like i can i embrace the fact that i'm an alcoholic and it does not bother me and like martha can see it yeah the signs it's kind of to be there yeah well she sees the signs but then she also is very in denial of her past and that's why she She's a negative person. Like these are all things that are very like psychologically like well maybe for me because I had to go to a lot of therapy. Yeah. <laughs> like to me these things are very black and white. You know when people are defensive, when they project, when they're really just like nasty and bitter and angry. It's not about the things around them. It's about them it's because they're unhappy with themselves because they they can't like accept themselves right and in the comic it's like played off as like something more like comedic because like from the perspective of a child you're like that's just them (laughs) that's just their personality (laughs) but then i grow up and i learn about my grandmother and i'm like wow you had a really hard life that led to you being disillusioned and bitter and negative and all these things and then even too i look at pat and i'm like wow you also had a profound life that instead that led you to love yourself and to accept where you are and to show compassion to your situation right and you know kind of the two the two older grant like grandma yeah i have two different reactions to their to their own problems yeah to their own lives and again that really relates to everything happening in the world today you see people who can see the mess and go you know what that's okay i forgive myself i forgive other people like let's just keep going forward versus others who are just in complete denial and who will blame everyone but themselves for the situation they found themselves in because they do not want to deal with the consequences of what it will take to make it good again right um but yeah, so that leading into that, my father came home and he has um, uh, a really bad eating disorder. And so did my grandmother. And I have an eating disorder. And what an eating disorder is, it isn't about um, your weight or your appearance. <laughs> appearance. It's um, just an addiction. You have the disorder that is addiction, except the addiction messes with your need to eat, um, to drink water, to... Um, just live within life so it's it's really it's really really tough because it attacks your base needs as a human being Mm -hmm. and it turns all of those things into addictions which makes life very 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 difficult and like warps how you think of yeah yeah and it's because it's a disease and what diseases do is they they kill you right and that's that's how it tries to get you to kill yourself by starving yourself to death by overeating Mm -hmm. by you know abusing the things that are supposed to keep you alive Right. But like, you know, it's completely manageable. (laughs) You can go to therapy for it. You can seek help. There's there's so many resources, like especially since I moved to Toronto. But, you know, at the time and particularly, too, because my father's a man. Men, you know, toxic masculinity, they don't talk about their feelings. They don't open up about these things. They don't share that they're that they're scared of their weight. They don't share that. So that it was just really tough because then my my father, you know, kind of turned a little bit into my grandma and then from the way that he was also very negative like and bitter very, and closed off yeah bitter closed wouldn't off wouldn't tell people what was going on yeah selfish would take his anger out on us and uh, it's abusive? really yeah <laughs> well the, the hard part is that like on a very basic scale 
you would someone would be like oh that's abuse and for a very long time until I came to like really understand my own eating disorder and then my father's eating disorder um you know yeah it's abuse mm-hmm. it's abuse like verbal yeah, it's physical ver- it's verbal abuse mental abuse okay and also too but then a lot of it was just like regular things that parents would do like smack their kids when they're being bad right. kind of thing but now into that that's considered abuse right so a lot of it too like a lot of the stuff that happened at that time was not considered anything other than parenting but because of new knowledge we have today and because of psychology we're like actually that's really bad that's detrimental that falls into the category of abuse right. but like because like i understand like my father it was never necessarily him it was all his eating disorder it was his addiction mm-hmm and like as much as like it's hard to separate the two because then it's like but then who was he if he wasn't himself right right but i'm like but yeah you know have someone who also has an eating disorder there were times where as much as i want to say that i was in control 24 7 i wasn't there's like whole weeks of my life i don't remember because my my eating disorder just you know you were thinking about what you were going to eat or what you weren't going to eat or yeah just like obsessing over drugs yeah i was like when's my next fix yeah kind of thing Mm -hmm. you know how do i how do i repress the next fix right and so a lot of like my dad's like mood swings and la 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 and all that and then on top of that the recession which is inflamed issues the fact that we were also like a lower class family we're not we weren't very like we were comfortable but we weren't we're comfortable in a small town but we were by no means you know, like well off. Right. Anything could like shift you. Yeah. Like there were, I remember several times when I was a kid of like the bank balance hitting zero and then it just causing like mayhem in my, in the house. Right. Because then it just puts my parents under immense amount of stress. Right. And then, you know, them also, then my father having like an eating disorder and then like he would not deal with it well. Because then, you know, it was just a way for the disorder to kind of be like, it's all your fault. And like, this is like, you, this is on you. And like, there's um, just like the ED voice. This is all other stuff. But yeah. like, and then similar to like my mother, who's then like an immigrant and who can't necessarily express herself to her fullest potential in a, in a second language. And then who also has a completely other way, like a cultural understanding of how to express anger. Right. And... Um, what you're supposed to be like as a woman yeah like i've had this so many times where people like in when we're having say like a heated debate or a conversation i will raise my voice and i will get very passionate and like these people these canadians who don't have you know they'll be like i didn't come here to get yelled at i was like what do you mean i'm not yelling at you this is how i express myself right you know and then find yourself having to like apologize for nothing yeah apologize like like that is ethnocentrism and now (laughs) when it happens i'm like no 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 no. i'm gonna continue to raise my voice this is not me yelling at you this is a cultural thing and it also helped because like i came from sault ste marie and they were uh the sioux is like had a huge influx of um italian immigrants after the first world war so it's a very passionate city (laughs) because like people it's like a little bit of that kind of like um, several generations over, but like of that Italian boisterous, boisterous, just still like everyone's yeah. like boisterous and they speak with their hands yeah. all the time yeah. and people are always very passionate and they don't mind yelling and being loud and, um, mm. you know, taking up space kind of thing. And then also, you know, my other side of me is French, French yeah, Canadian. Which is that yeah. Also. Which is also very similar. Like people that they like to yell, they're very passionate, you know, they speak with their hands. Right. And so, you know, growing up like that and then coming to the city and then people getting very, you know, being like, wow, you need to calm down. I'm like, yeah, I'm very calm. I just 
what <laughs> it's like that moment and then i yeah like for years coming well for me like after coming to the gta i had like huge culture shock because i was just like am i a bad person like what and then also too i didn't understand like in the book um i touched upon like you know being of mixed race being lower class la 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 but like up until that point when i was 18 19 making the book i was still under the same impression that melody was i thought that people didn't like me just because i was a nerd Right. Or because I was weird or because I was just unlikable. Right. Um, I thought that, you know, again, I thought that people similarly like, like my family for the, didn't like my family for the same reason. So, like, oh, it's just because we were like one of the dirty families. But it never clued into me to like be like, but what does that mean? Until I came to the GTA and then I started to learn all these things. And then coincidentally, the world began learning. And it was just like every day, my Facebook feed, just the news, it was just blown up with all these new things about it's like, oh, but. This is right. This is this is all the things, the new things on racism. These are the new things on feminism. These are the new things that we've learned about, like, you know, decolonized history and yeah, genocide. We went from, then, like, knowing about, like, overt racism to figuring out, like, subtle racism and mm-hmm. subtle uh, and like subtle ways, subtle classism and subtle ways that, you know, minorities and immigrants and people in the world were, or in Canada, pardon me, were being kind of made to feel lesser than and it was just like every day was this like mind-blowing experience yeah and the people that were doing it either knew that they were doing it or didn't know that they were doing it but sort of subconsciously doing it because of generations of yeah because there's ways that they were taught to treat people to treat people then you're like oh that was racist they're like i'm not a racist i'm like no i never said you were but what you're doing is right and then just, oh, so much. This conversation can go on forever because <laughs> right. it's still something that's so prevalent in the world today. Right. So when did you decide to, like, make it a graphic novel? Oh, that was just, like, that was, like, my accident, baby. Okay. <laughs> First time making you, a comic. <laughs> were you doing comics um, before? Because I noticed no, in the no. back there's sort of... There's sort of like little doodles or like yeah. proto versions. Of, no, it's of... not a proto version. They okay. have a comic strip called the Daily Comics. Okay. And the whole joke about it was just that it was supposed to look very naive and simplistic and kind of ratty um, just to tell daily life because daily life is naive, simplistic and a little bit ratty. Right. And did that start with the web comics? No, no. Okay. Um, well, I guess that's when I started talking about my life yeah and started doing autobiographical work i guess it was the beginning when i was in university just to be fun um i started just comicking about funny things that i thought were hilarious of me and my friends from my own perspective and just stuff that would happen to me in life and i would just make little one two three four panel comics on it and i'd post it on my facebook just for my classmates and we'd all get like a laugh out of it um and then uh yeah, it just, I really don't know how it all came through. Because I remember when I was in high school, I was under the impression that I was going to become an animator. But then... Because you were just talented at drawing and liked cartoons and, st- and stuff? or uh, <laughs> <laughs> It was more of a very, well, I don't know. I always, I was always just like, I'm in, how can I say this? I'm an artist. <laughs> right. I'm just an artist. I'm, I'm in music, dance, theater drawing it's just it's all in there i'm a renaissance lady right and yeah well like well i think like i think of like michelangelo right he's a renaissance man and what that means is that you you do it you do it all you do all the arts so i'm like i'm a i'm a a renaissance woman but uh 
I ugh, this is so this is so me though. Ugh. Well, Burns is Boonies is a romance, and I'm just giving into the fact that I'm a huge romantic. But when I was like in elementary school, like grade seven or eight, I was in an art camp and I fell head over heels with one of my camp counselors. And he was like graduating high school that year and he went to um one of the high schools in my town and was like, I'm gonna be an animator. And I had these these ridiculous fantasies and I was like, oh, but they were so innocent. I was just like, awesome, I'm gonna go to the same high school and do the same courses and then I'm gonna become an animator too. And then I'm gonna go to Sheridan and then we're gonna see each other again and I'll be a woman and we'll fall in love and like all this like <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid stuff. I, I but... did that once. I, I chose <laughs> band for my first grade eight elective because this girl that I liked was doing it, but yeah. I really sucked at band. And yeah. after the first week I transferred to drama because that's what I really wanted to do. But oh. I totally did that just, yeah. for, just for a girl. Yeah, I was just like, I don't know, like, because like, I just really looked up to him, right? Because right. he was one of my like teachers. I'm like, he's so cool and he's so talented. And like, I guess like at that age, I'm like, I guess it means this is love kind of deal. But it was a different kind of love because he was. He, he was a little bit of a hero. Mm-hmm. And he inspired me. And I did go to that the high school he went to. I went to the program he went to, um, mentored by the same teacher, you know, and then I went, I did, I went to the exact same school he went to, but he was in animation. And then I went into illustration at Sheridan. Did you cross College. paths? Uh, no, I never saw him again. Uh, but he is very, he's a very, very well-to-do uh, stop animator. So he's doing, he's doing perfectly fine. Our parents, like he lives down the street from my parents. His parents live down the street from my parents. <laughs> my mom still picks on me. She's like, hey, you know whose parents are? So I'm like, shut your mouth. <laughs> Be quiet. She's like, when are you guys going to get married? I'm like, he is happily married. Thank you very much. And Don't. this whole time he has no idea. <laughs> oh, no idea. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm living in fear of the day. Uh, I'm like, I am, but I'm not. I'm like, nah, it's fine. Um, but like, he'll, it's like the day he hears this and he's like, oh, and I'm like, no. <laughs> Don't don't be creeped out, please. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's a very it's a very like innocent, you know. He just inspired me to like at least start on my path towards being in the arts. Right. And like yeah, because like all throughout university, I tried a lot of animation. Me and a really good friend of mine uh, would compete in animation contests, and uh, that's when I learned I really didn't like it. <laughs> just it, was it the cog in the wheel type of thing? Like a lot of people for animation, they just don't like being sort of made to draw like a little piece and then having oh, they don't no want to be on a control, team you know what i mean no it's just it didn't scratch that itch um you know it didn't it didn't allow me to express myself in a way that i felt was fulfilling right i guess um yeah it just it wasn't for me mm-hmm. so there it was and um from there i went on to illustrate just doing illustration at sheridan college and i don't know it's just the whole time like i can't explain what made me want to do comics like i read comics all throughout my life my dad owned a comic book store your dad owned a comic book store yeah it was called the Starbase uh before i was born my dad owned a comic book store and that's how he met my guardian father and my godfather like um he was just like the kid he hired to be the cashier ended up being my guardians and that's how like he met my guardian met his wife at the store she was a regular customer when you say your guardian what is in oh, so your, what does that mean? Oh, your, so like okay. I have a very religious family, okay. so Christian and Catholic. Um, they're very different. Christians and Catholics are very different. But my guardian is from the Christian side. So what their job is is, um, you know, they promise to God um, during my baptism that 
if you know my parents were to get hurt before i like became of age they would become my parents okay and then there's my godfather on the catholic side and that's also it's kind of the same thing but it's just like the catholic side and the christian side and then on the catholic side you have the godfather and uh he was a regular customer at my dad's store and they became best friends cool that way so your dad owned a comic book store before you were born yeah and then eventually became like a like a trucker but he must have been into comics yeah he's right. a huge nerd he's a massive fanboy right okay so so did is that how they sort of got pa- that interest got passed in d- down to you or i guess well because my dad was never around right but right. like when i was a kid my parents were always giving me books um, I remember even though we didn't have very much money, the rule was is that if you want to buy a book, we have to buy it. You're always allowed to buy a book. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Like that was, but like, so that was like <laughs> being a kid, you're like, you know, you just get really shady about it. And I'll be like, hey, mom, can I get this Barbie? And she'll be like, of course not. I'm like, then can I get a book? <laughs> and she can't say no. And she's like, oh, damn. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, and I go, go, go like I'd buy um, like a Dr. Seuss book or, you know, like some sort of children's literature until I graduated um, to like the singular carousel of Tokyo pop manga at the Coles, at the only Coles in right. Seuss Amory. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. So... I know that like manga is a heavy influence on your style now, so I want to get into like how did you get into manga and, oh. and anime? And that oh sort my of god, stuff. my comic mom, Rumiko Takahashi. Okay, tell yeah. me about that. Uh, well, Rumiko Takahashi is a goddess in my eyes, but she um, is uh, the author of uh, Maison Koku, Ranma One Half, Inuyasha, um, Yurutse Yatsura. I think that's how you say it. And then One Pound Gospel, also Mermaid Saga. She is just like a prolific, a astoundingly prolific, talented woman, Japanese um, artist and writer. And um, my dad had a bunch of Ranmas, the original Viz publish, uh, published copies from, I think, like the 80s, just like hanging out in our basement. And I was always really attracted to the art and the storytelling um, I know that I know now because it was like her feminine voice. Like he had a lot of uh, other like of the greats down there. We had like Fist of the North Star, um, uh, Gogo Thirteen. Uh, oh my God, Sanctuary, Crying Freeman. What else did he have for for manga? Akira. Oh, uh, Akira, yeah, Akira was down there. Um, Giver, just like all these like huge hits of that time right. um, when he was, you know, in like the eighties ish. Uh, manga and uh, Robotech. <laughs> yeah. But like Rumiko was the only voice who was just really appealed to me and who spoke to me on just such a level that I could not understand, you know. What, as, what was it? Um, well, it's it's Ranma. It's Ranma one half. That whole series is based upon the idea that men and women are equal. And that like the main character Ranma, when he gets splashed with, um, well, he is originally a boy. Okay. But when he gets splashed with cold water, he turns into a girl because he fell into this ancient Chinese spring. And so now when he gets splashed with cold water, he becomes a girl. But the whole point is throughout the whole series that regardless if he's a girl or a boy, he is still himself. Right. And um, it doesn't matter if, you know, he's still the strongest fighter. He's still the hottest person in the room. <laughs> Even if he's a boy or a girl, he's still the most beautiful person in the room. He's always the best. He's still, you know, and just kind of shows, it would just constantly show that, like, regardless of, you know, male or female, it doesn't matter. You know, right. equality. And at the end of the day, too, which was really beautiful, regardless of the fact, like, no matter what gender he was, Akane, his, like, love interest, you know, always loved him. 
right kind That's of awesome. thing so it sort of influenced yeah. like how you felt about identity and, mm-hmm. and things didn't matter. And well, for, that's why it was really like shocking to me because like I'm reading this powerful literature as a kid and I'm just like, oh yeah, whatever. And I would just go out into the world and do whatever the heck I wanted, not right. really understanding that I was a woman, quote right. unquote. Yeah, and nothing like, was like, restricted by gender no nothing like, was didn't do, like, I'm like as long as i'm the best yeah. <laughs> it sounds incredibly arrogant but like i remember thinking I'm like no i was like go through your head and this is also a very third like um a very like asian perspective too like my mom would always tell me as a kid she's like no you could be the poorest of the poor in the philippines if you work hard if you are intelligent you can become the richest and then do you know what you do and i'm like what she's like and then you go back and you buy all the companies of the people <laughs> who you know you know ever told you that you weren't going to amount to anything and this is this is a very like a third world country developing country ideal as long as you work really really hard you can go from nothing to everything right and um that was always just my mentality. I was just like, oh, yeah, I just need to be smarter. I need to be the smartest. I need to work harder. I need to just like it was just kind of like a checklist. I'm like, oh, if I want that, then I have to do all these things. Right. And it'll be fine. You know, as long as I can prove that I am, you know, good enough to do this. Right. Kind of thing. But and Which is great, but also ignores sort of the societal pressures and things that sort of get in the way of that. Yeah, well, yeah. just the fact that I'm a, I'm a woman, right. you know, and also I'm cons- like just stuff like that and my age. These are all things that never really crossed my mind because I'm reading all this powerful like feminist literature of like seeing these characters just go out and get what they want and achieve what they want in life just by like the simple, you know, the simple beauty of the fact that they just try really hard and they're good at what they do and they're earnest. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I can do that, too. But then right. you go out into the world and suddenly it's like, no, but you're a woman and you're a woman of color, right? and you're this class. And and then it's just like, what? <laughs> you know, all these things that are like, just what's we're battling today. Right. And then also like stylistically, like not just in your ideals and that sort of stuff, but oh, yeah, no, stylistically, I'm, I'm a huge... manga is super like, you know, it's part of your style. Yeah. 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 No, it is. Um, 80s manga. Just again, mm-hmm. like all the stuff that I was raised on. Like, yeah. I really, really love that aesthetic. Um, I grew up watching like Dirty Pair, Tank Police. Um, oh, my goodness gracious. So, like Apple Seeds, Ghost in the Shell. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just like that 80s aesthetic, Robotech with like the round faces, the really like hyper technical backgrounds and, and, you know poses and bodies but then just like the big sparkly eyes yeah yeah, (laughs) totally totally so you're in illustration at sheridan and then were you like i'm gonna start making comics or yeah well actually i was in my second year and i don't know like when it happened but i was we were doing you know the course and i was going through all the different kinds of illustration and i was just not having any of it nothing was inspiring me i felt very drained and empty and it felt you know, just not fun. Didn't right. feel fun. Like art's supposed to be fun. And you just sort of had this vague idea, like I'm going to be an artist. I don't really know how that's going to go, but like. Kind of. Yeah. I just, it's weird. I just had this like, I'm a, like, again, I'm a very spiritual person, but I just, I had this deep feeling deep inside of me. I'm like, no, I'm supposed to be here. And I know that I'm going to make stuff and I want to tell stories somehow, but I don't like, I just, I know that I'm, I know that I'm going to make art, but I can't explain it. And then um, I had a really fantastic professor in my second year, um, Jenny Say, and she uh, was a new professor and she just was so like passionate and hopeful and really honest 
you know, wasn't really scared to kind of like duke it out with us and just like, you know, lay it all out on the table. And I remember, I guess I was having just like a conference with her one day and I just kept telling her, I'm like, I'm so burnt out and I'm unhappy and I don't want to do this. I just want to make comics. It's the only thing that makes me happy right now. And she got really frustrated with me, I think, because at that point, like she kept on trying to help me. And I was just like, no, I don't want to. And like stuff like that until finally she was like, fine, then go. Just go make comics. Just go. If that's what, if that's what you want to do, go. Go do it. And then me being, you know, the kind of person I am, I was like, fine, <laughs> I'll go do that then. And so I immediately um, went out and I asked another professor if she knew um, anyone who did like comic internships or like comic artists that I could contact. And she was like, ah, sure, I guess. I mean, I have this one friend, although, you know, she's pregnant right now. So like, I don't know how much she'll help you. But I emailed her. And she uh, kind of declined uh, being able to help me. But then she's passed on my email to Ramon K. Perez and hooked me up with him. Nice. Yeah. And then he and I started talking and we clicked like immediately. And then I became his mentee. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And then Not he started. Shabby. <laughs> yeah. He started. Well, the funny part is I had no idea who this guy was. I was just at that point. I was like, whatever. He's just a working artist named Ramon, I guess. Because <laughs> I didn't read. I didn't really read North American comics. Right. I only really read manga. So like that whole world to me was just like a wasteland. And then I meet this guy and I was like, cool. I don't know who you are and you're going to help me. Awesome. I'm like, I'm very thankful, but that's it. I didn't know who he was. Right. So would you meet him at like raid? Like how did that work out? Yeah. I would just go meet him at raid at their old location. And then, um, like he would just be like, okay, well, I guess I'll just like start you off, um, write a script and then bring it back to me in two weeks just for like 10 pages. Yeah. Kind of deal. And then I came back with like a 52 page script <laughs> <laughs> of like, you know, um, no breakdown, just like just constant writing and dialogue. And he was like, oh, okay. Um, well, I guess try, you know, roughing out 10 or so pages of it. <laughs> um, and then I came back the week after that with, I think it was like 30 or 40 pages drawn out of that were the first 30, 40 pages of Queen Street. Wow. Yeah. And were you, did you drop out of Sheridan at this point or did you? No, this was during a summer. Okay. And then the next year I did, I finished my third year, which was really, really rough. And then I dropped out that summer. Okay. And then I uh, ended up just like getting a full-time job as a barista and then on the side finished the comic book. Right. Right. And like, I guess seeing your parents, like your mom being a waitress, your dad being a truck driver, like you Mm -hmm. knew that it was possible to like, you know, you could follow your dreams and still have a job. And there wasn't, there isn't that kind of Canadian pressure of like, you know, you have to go to university and what are you doing? And well, yeah, like now today, that's definitely such a thing. There's a huge expectation that everyone has to have a career, right? which is, I mean, you know, from a woman's perspective, you know, it is such a privilege to have a career. Right. And so there is a side of me that just wants to have a career for the fact that, you know, all the generations before me could not ever even dream of having the kind of opportunities that I have today. Right. So it is, it's a privilege and it's something that, you know, all of us, if you have the ability to like, yeah, go get that, go get it, go get that privilege. You earned it. Yeah, 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 totally. But, um, so in terms of, in terms of your, in terms of Queen Street and like, did he shepherd you into finding a publisher or? No, 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 no. Um, I don't even remember. How? Oh, that's right. I had a, I had another, I had a mutual fr- a friend in university who met um, the publisher at Chapter House at a convention because he, um, he was trying to scout him as a colorist. 
And uh, my friend uh, passed on my information to him because I guess like when he thought of me, so he passed on my information to uh, the publicist at uh, Chapter House. And then that's how they found me. And then they really wanted to pick up Queen Street because I thought it was something, you know, that uh, fit um, their roster of literature. Right. Like Canadian and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the thing. Like what happened? Like what was the reaction to that? Did you get more work off of it? Like, Um, Not particularly, no. Uh, The main reaction of Queen Street was that I got a really wonderful response from the Asian community and from the Filipino community. And, you know, from just other, well, just, yeah, Filipinos, <laughs> right. Filipinos and Asians and people who are like, yeah, like this is, this is really cool. This is a big deal. Like there aren't any really like prevalent Philip, like, you know, proper like Filipino female comic artists, you know, in Canada or just in general, like there's a couple of us, um, again, male but like they're like, wow, like you're young and this is great. And then you're talking about not just like Marvel and DC, but the actual, you know, in like like first generation immigrant experience and putting Filipino content out onto the market. Right. Um, I was it was incredibly validating for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, like the only prominent like Filipino comic artist that comes to mind is Francis Manipal, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Like locally here. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, you're you're another one. Yeah, but again, like because. Um, Oh, he's so talented. His art's so good. Um, but he works for like Marvel in DC, right? So right. his job, you know, mainly deals in sharing and developing mythology and right. current stories and, you know, kind of building on the mythos of heroes that already exist um, in North America. Right. And you're doing the more indie thing. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, I'm like, well, I just want to write about, <laughs> you know, everyday life. But now, like, you're doing something completely different. You're doing a erotic comic that's only on Patreon, mm-hmm. Princess Bungie, and it and it sort of let me. It sort of walks the line between sort of the chaste romance of like sex, uh, you know, wait until marriage, but then it has the sort of more North American, more modern take of like let's get down let's do this like there's actual nudity there's (laughs) sex scenes it's all in like this sort of chaste fantasy framing Mm -hmm. but you're sort of playing with like you know the cath your catholic upbringing Mm -hmm. versus like the pressures of sort of the media that's sort of more sexualized yeah and and that sort of stuff tell me about that like what why go to patreon uh, why not just publish it as like a regular graphic novel? Why do it as like a sort of independent, more mm-hmm. underground thing? Because like less people are going to see it. Um, uh, well, the more more and more I've learned, you know, in just like, like being in comics, as much as it is like super like fulfilling emotionally and mentally, you don't get paid a lot of money. Right. You really don't in compare in comparison to like every other industry. And the amount of work and just the sheer talent and the fortitude of the artists in this. And it's, it's a I don't know. To me, I think it's a crime that these beautiful, wonderful people are getting paid so low, but you really do not make enough money um, to be able to really, really support yourself. Right. And there's there's some unscrupulous publishers out there and stuff, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a tough. It's a very, very tough industry. Um, but... I was thinking, I'm like, yeah, but I, I still love it, though. <laughs> like, you know, this is this is my community. This is where I want to be. And 
you know, I'm going to love it regardless. I'll make change where I can. But like, what can I do to continue making comics and to keep like growing my, my skill and my talent, but then make sure that I get money. And then I was like, oh, well, Patreon, perfect. Because right. the people who are there, they want to be there, you know, and they're appreciating it and they're paying for it. And it has like a really nice platform. And it was just kind of like easy, you know. And I know a lot of other artists who get supported through Patreon, just kind of supporting them as people. And they'll just upload sketches or, you know, background content or articles on their process and stuff like that. So I, I did some research, checked out other Patreon comics, and I figured, you know, this is something that I can do. Right. So I posted it on there. And then also, too, I'm like, well, what are people going to want to pay for? At least, like, immediately and, like, right now. And as much as, like, my work, like, Queen Street is very, like, slice of life and, you know, kind of political and talks about the times and all of the other work I hope to make in the future are, like, dramas or, you know, things, again, that are much more heavy and that make you... Um, think on a less like funny, <laughs> you know, fun level. I was just like, well, you know, why don't I, why don't I make porn? <laughs> it was just like, is this where I am in my life right now? It's kind I of funny I'm because I feel like the porn. most successful people on Patreon are the people that are that are doing porn. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, I, I guess I don't know. Yeah, uh, it seems. I just I figured I'm like, you know, why the heck not? And. After, um, it was just funny because like a lot of my friends and people who know me, like I'm like the nun, <laughs> right? you know, I'm kind of like the goody goody and like the justice person and it's very, you know, and yeah, well, see, I'm disgusting. This is where I just, I'm so gross. I met a boy guys. I met a boy. Well, he's a man technically, but <laughs> I met someone who just really inspired me to want to kind of like tackle a lot of things in my life that I never realized were issues, you know? Right. Like um, your Catholic upbringing versus yeah, your yeah, desires or Yeah. That and like, cause like thing. I met this person and we're very, we were very attracted to each other and I cared for him very deeply. And I started to realize that like within our relationship, a lot of issues started to come up and a lot of barriers and like boundaries between us. And a lot of it, at least from my end, cause I can't speak for him. He has his own issues, but from my end, a lot of it had to do with my upbringing and my Catholic upbringing and all of my insecurities like intertwined with that um stopping me from loving this person properly and fully and from like showing up for them in our relationship in a way that was healthy and good for the two of us and you know and that became made like super super real to me I'm like wow I need to make a lot of changes in my life and it really woke me up so you know amongst like other things like uh, like the the main the main the very first tier on the patreon is like help me get therapy <laughs> right yeah because therapy is really expensive and like I, right now i'm like i'm in group therapy for eating disorders at sheena's place which is an amazing resource it's free right um but i was like no i also would like to get like proper one-on-one -on -one therapy but it's very expensive particularly too because i need i have certain needs as a person of color and, you know, as a person who also has an eating disorder and who's right. dealing with, um, you know, disenfranchisement from a religious culture. Right. Like you need to have a therapist who understands these and who can these things and who can help you. Yeah. And because like the more specialized it gets, like the higher the price goes yeah. for these these people. So because like I've had I've had really bad experiences with therapists simply yeah. because they didn't understand, you know, my perspective as a person of color and like that's very dangerous because you're dealing with your health right. so you can be like oh this happened to me like i remember once i was like telling 
um, just like a school therapist about like a racist encounter. And I was struggling because I didn't understand it was a racist encounter at the time. And the therapist was just like, oh, you're just paranoid. Right. Like because, they didn't get it. Because they didn't get it either. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't understand that the situation was racist either. It's like, oh, no, you're just overthinking. Right. You're probably just anxious and paranoid because you're insecure. Right. Even though that's not the case. So, so a lot of Princess Bunyi then is to work out your issues yeah, around it's to work sexuality out. and what you were taught. Yeah. And then even from just a religious what I see yeah. in the world today, you know, because like a lot of people like scoff at romantic comedies and at romance books and movies. But romance book, it is the biggest, the biggest hands down book industry. Right. Period. And that it is run by women, made by women, produced by women for women. And I'm like, that's such a, you know, it's such an understated thing. I'm like, one of the biggest entertainment, you know, like moguls in the world is just all women, four women. Harlequin's the biggest publisher and it's in Toronto. Yeah. And it's fantastic. And what like people laugh at it. They're like, this stuff is embarrassing. I'm like, no, you're embarrassing. Yeah. For several reasons. Because like, to me, I find it absolutely like I wrote, I wrote a little blurb about this in my stories because I I write, I write quite a bit um, Mm. about like my thoughts around you know, going into porn, writing romance. And I was really upset because like a reaction I get all the time from people who, you know, are they like, you're writing like romance novels or like you read Harlequin novels. I'm like, yes, yes, I do. Because it is shameful that one of the biggest like thriving industries in entertainment today simply focuses around equal relationships, equal love relationships and where men respect women. Right, and where but it's men marginalized women. from a publishing perspective. Yeah, and then people look at it as being embarrassing. I'm like, no, it's embarrassing that this people pay money to, to escape into a fictional fantasy of this reality where men respect women. Like, yeah. this, no. Th- it's this not is, real. It's not the books that are embarrassing. Yeah. It's the culture that forces these people to release themselves in these ways and to find escape in these ways that's embarrassing. Right. You know, if anything, like, these women are heroes. Right. <laughs> They're heroes. And also, too, what I love about it, it's just women writing saying whatever they want to say and writing about what they want to hear and like what a what a coincidence that what they want to hear and what they want to say is men respecting women and, and men loving princess bunny gives you the same freedom because yeah it's sort of like you're not actually doing any of this stuff it's sort of in a fantasy sort of thing even in the book right like mm-hmm. you know yeah, she's well, dreaming of romance but also she wants to get it on with this guy mm-hmm. well it's but, just kind of like the yeah it's like the the catholic crux you know it's the whole thing it's like you you find someone attractive and you're just like oh you know very innocently you're like i would like to sleep with them but not in a creepy way but then suddenly it's like but you're gonna burn in hell if you do right. and like all of the shame and the guilt on top of that and like the slut shaming right. and all of that kind of thing but like the whole, the whole first chapter deals with that and as you'll see you know well that's like her side of it and like her growth and what i hope to show but just kind of making fun of also that too and guys like they end up working together so yeah you gotta support uh, Princess Bunyi on on Patreon, Emmanuel. Thanks so much. Is there anything else that you're that you're working on that you also want to plug? Uh, no. Or things coming out? <laughs> not particularly. Not yet. No. All right. Sounds good. Where can people find you on the internet? Oh well, you can find me on Instagram, uh, Emmanuel Chateauneuf. Um, you can find me on Twitter at the Batmanny. Um, you can find Princess Bunyi on Instagram at princess.bunyi and then on Patreon. So www.patreon.com slash princessbunyi. And subscribe, guys. It's really good. I'm a subscriber. Uh, kick in a few shekels and uh, 
basically you'll be able to read every issue. How often does it come out? It comes out once a month on the 1st. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, We'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.